0: Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast, where each week we talk with the writers and editors of the Peninsula Pulse about the stories you can find in this week's issue. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. How's it going, Miles? One take. That was awesome. Great intro. In in case anybody thinks that I have just one recording of that that we blast in front of everyone, we've thought about it, but I think it's just easier for me to to ramble it off. And uh, lately, it's been getting harder and harder to get all out. I don't know what's (laughs) going on. I think it's just so second nature now that I just like my mind wanders when I'm saying it. So Miles, we have more news this week. This is part two of our big news roundup for this week. In the last couple of weeks, have a couple interesting things to talk about. But first off, the autumn issue of the Door County Living Magazine is now out.
1: Yeah, we've got a great issue out that it came out uh, right before Labor Day. I don't, I'm really, really proud of the work that our crew put in. There's Len velano has got great photographs for almost every article. Matt Pottis did a wonderful story about the 1989 Southern Door Eagles that we uh, had a podcast about a couple of weeks ago that Southern Door Eagles team that won the state championship and just dominated Door County back when I was a little kid. So
0: Yeah, that was an interesting one. I actually edited that conversation. I wasn't part of it initially. So it was cool to hear about it before I had read the article just to kind of get that background on it. It was a cool conversation. It was a little alarming how many times you referred to the high school men as studs, but again, I think that that's <laughs> probably a,
1: that's the technical term for that. Yes, yes. Southern Door was loaded back then. So, okay. Um, the... Other stuff in there, uh, Maddie Cheryl did a great one digging into, like, what's the story behind the graffiti at Anderson Dock? Jim Lundstrom just dives into the backstory of how Ephraim got its name. It's Ephraim, not Ephraim. <laughs> and there's kind of an interesting story behind that. Got some great fall hikes for you to check out. Some great recipes for both drinks and tacos in there from Jess Farley. You know, we, we we
0: mention it when we talk about each episode of the Door County Living Magazine, but I think it's important to bring up again. So this is an autumn issue, uh, but work started on this over a year ago, right?
1: Yeah, work on these magazines, people ask me this sometimes, like, oh, why can't you get this article in that I just pitched you this week, and it comes out in two weeks, you should be able to get that in. Well, the reason is because to put out the magazine, we have to start lining up photography a year in advance. Because if it comes out for the fall issue, like, You can't take good fall images in August. So, like, right now, we're deep in the planning for next year's fall issue. The winter issue, most of the stuff that we'll be publishing in that issue, has already been photographed and thought out several, several months ago, maybe even, well, definitely last winter at the latest. So, it does take about a nine-month lead time for most of the articles that come out in the magazine, and... A lot of rounds of editing every article goes in front of the eyes of at least three different editors in addition to the writer so there's just a lot of of steps that we put it through to try and make it you know as interesting as obviously accurate and a true reflection of our community it's really fun to dive deep into the kind of stories that people always ask at the bar or the coffee shop or around the dinner table and try to put some of those answers out in each issue of the magazine. So, just because I'm curious, uh, what do you find the big differences are between
0: writing for The Pulse every week and writing an article for the magazine?
1: Well, for me, I think of it like the magazine's going to sit out there two to three months minimum on people's coffee tables and on shelves. So, I want it to be an article that has staying power, that technically could be sitting there for 10 years and still be interesting to somebody. Whereas a lot of what we write in The Pulse from week to week, there are articles like that. A lot of times, our feature articles. Are like that, but they're usually more tied to current events, something going on in the county right now. Like we might do something about a restaurant history and the family's history, which is sort of like not time sensitive. But we usually will tie it to, all right, they have a big anniversary coming up or we've never written about this restaurant before and we want to get that out there or this person before. And it ties to something, maybe a veteran around one of the veterans holidays. But for the magazine, it's tied to the season, but it's not tied to that specific day or year so it's more i think they're more timeless and i i love really digging into articles for instance so like this is a little inside baseball for people but you know the typical article like yesterday i was writing about a surgeon bay city council meeting and to put that article out you go to the the city council meeting you sit through that luckily this one was only about 90 minutes sometimes they can be 3 hours drive down to surgeon bay drive back so now you got like 4 to 5 hours into that alone and then afterwards you follow up to get more details or get more color for the story and so yesterday I might have talked to Jim Schusler at Door County Economic Development Corporation I did talk to Mayor David Ward talked to a gentleman who's kind of in opposition of a housing development down in Sturgeon Bay and placed several other phone calls maybe you hear back maybe you don't from five or six other people and that's just for maybe a 700 word news story for the magazine however I'm probably trying to avoid doing phone calls. If I'm writing a story in the magazine about a place or a person, I'm trying to go into that person's home or into their workplace or experience that thing with them to try and get more color to it, to really immerse somebody in that story, to make it worth being on the shelf for three months, to really paint a picture for the reader so they can dive in and sink into you know, maybe a two to 3,000-word story and just get lost in it and really feel like they know that person Or they know that environment or I think Matt Pottis did a great job of putting people into that season of Southern Door football and taking them through like the ups and downs and the journey that they went on. And he did that by reading every newspaper clip about that 1989 Southern Door team and talking to at least seven or eight different players, coaches, sports writers from the time and really immersing himself in that story. So to me, that's what the magazine is an opportunity to do is really flesh out your reporting and writing skills and flex those muscles. Any other highlights from the magazine this time around that you want to mention? Well, there's the new Northern Sky Theater. Celeste Benshawel took us inside that new theater and what the process was and why Northern Sky needed that new space. Kind of because everyone might say like, all right, they have this theater in the park. They're really successful. Why build a $7.8 million space? She dives deep into that. Maddie Sherrill took us on a ride on the Edith Becker, the three-masted schooner that sails out of Sister Bay that if you spent any time in Sister Bay this summer and you didn't get on that boat, you've probably seen it out there and thought, wow, what a cool, beautiful boat. Or you've heard the cannonball fire that they mark the end of every ride with. So there's a lot more backstory to that boat. It actually used to have a different name. It circumnavigated the globe twice. And she tells a lot of the story behind that. And then Jim Lundstrom took us down to Strawberry Creek where they do this annual salmon run where they're doing tagging and harvesting of, of salmon down there. It's a DNR program where they take the salmon, you know, a lot of the salmon die in this process, but they take those to like feed my people and things and use that to feed hungry people. So a lot of cool stories about stuff that people wouldn't necessarily know unless you pick up this magazine and and flip through the pages. So you mentioned the article that Celeste wrote about Northern Sky. Northern Sky actually just
0: finished and opened their Gould Theater, which is their new standalone space that they're going to be able to function out of year-round. And you were there for the grand opening of that.
1: I've been following the story for a while. Uh, What did you take away from seeing the new space? It's beautiful. I think it will very quickly find its place amongst people's favorite buildings in Door County and architecturally some of the most interesting buildings. It's one of those places that when they announced this, like I said, with Celeste's article, I said, well, why, why do they need to do this? And as a board member of Right On Door County and an organization that kind of partners with a lot of different places and has to kind of piece things together to stage events and, and host classes, I totally understand what they were going through in trying to find rehearsal spaces and storage spaces and office space in a lot of different locations to be able to put things on on that stage in the park. So they're going to continue to use the park, but they now have a home for all their offices, for storage, for costume design, for set design. And then they have this new theater. So it's a 248 seat theater, not too big for reference. That's about a third the size of the Door Community Auditorium, but still sizable enough that you can have a decent size production there. And it's beautiful. I mean, they really did a nice job of trying to, I think the architect's name is Peter Tan, of mimicking what. The theater in the park was and saying, okay, we're going to do this indoor, but we're going to bring some of that park feel in by having these tall windows that you can still see the treetops when you're sitting in the seats in the theater. When you're walking around the lobby, you have these big floor to ceiling windows that just bring the nature in. It's got a lot of wood accents in there too. So it's got kind of a, a half modern, half natural feel to it. I'm no architecture critic, so there's probably much better ways of saying that. But the best I can say is it's really cool. It's a really inviting space that I think people are going to be pretty excited once they see it.
0: Well, and theatrically speaking, too, those big windows, I'd seen the video that you brought in. We're working on putting together a little video to kind of showcase the interior and talk about it a little bit. Hopefully, you'll be able to see that as the podcast comes up. But check that out on doorcountypulse.com. We'll share it on Facebook and stuff like that. But those big windows that you had mentioned, not only great for an audience member to be able to kind of feel the nature going on, but such a great thing for the actors on stage to have that real natural lighting to rehearse hmm. with. Yeah. I never um, thought of that. Well, cause like theaters have two types of lighting. Basically they have these really kind of stark sterile house lights where everything's just kind of bland and usually kind of green. And it just is very like stark and clinical. Uh, and then you've got your actual production lights, which it's really hard to rehearse under because they're hot, they're bright they, It's a totally different feel. Mm-hmm. And you also can't run them the entirety of your rehearsals because it doesn't make sense to be using those big lights for that long a period of time. Okay, um, Being able to be on stage with natural lighting during your rehearsals is so much nicer than just using the house lighting or the the stage lights because you spend so much time in that room often on a black empty stage with nobody else in the room except for the cast and the director and you're doing that you know five hours a day every day for a whole week and then two weeks three weeks so on and so forth that lighting is so important just to
1: keep you feeling
0: alive and like you're not yeah locked away
1: yeah I mean nobody likes to work in a cave right right (laughs) one of the best things about our office here is the windows and the skylights to have just much natural light as possible Sometimes when you see pictures of other newspaper offices or offices in general or schools where they don't have the outdoor windows, you're like, wow, we are pretty lucky. Who the heck designed these ugly things? Right. So, but yeah, it's beautiful in there. And a side note of one thing that was pretty awesome about going to that opening is Ingrid Johnson of Al Johnson's, Al Johnson's wife, the late Al Johnson. Uh, she's got to be close to 90 now. And I ended up just hanging out and talking to her for about an hour as we were waiting for the uh the ribbon cutting ceremony and first of all that woman still has so much energy she has so many great stories to tell it was amazing to just sit there and talk to her and think about to be 90 and look back and go my husband and I had this incredible restaurant that's been open for 70 years and has impacted so many lives and we've had so many employees and marriages that started in our kitchen and our dining room and have given back to the community in so many different ways you know, through both philanthropy and many, many unspoken contributions. And I was just sort of sitting there talking to her thinking, wow, what a great legacy to have and what it must be like to to look back at that age and know that. I don't even know if you do realize that when you've done something like that. Maybe not. Uh, I didn't get the impression that she does. <laughs> she does think about it that much, but I'd be like, man, that would be a heck of a life to have lived. And then to also be at the opening of this theater, which is all built on donor dollars, almost $8 million. And I know I go on a lot of rants on this podcast about the people who don't participate and don't show up, but it's also a good reminder of like, that's $7.8 million worth of people putting their money where their mouth is and showing up and putting forth the effort, both the staff at Northern Sky, because it's not easy to raise that money and ask other people for money. And Then to carry it through and do the work with the architects and Carlson Erickson that did the work on the building and did extraordinary work. It's just uh, pretty inspiring. And in the frustrations, I always try to remember all the people in this community who are giving. I mean, we're remarkably generous. We have that theater. We have the Peninsula Players. You have Birch Creek. You have the Crest Pavilion. That's all people giving of their time and their money to make those things happen so that the peons like you and I can go and enjoy them and use them, and kids around here can go and use them and be inspired by them. It's, it's really remarkable.
0: Yeah, and I think the cool thing about this story too, the first day I'd heard of it, I have the opportunity to work with David Alley, who's the technical director over at Northern Sky, every winter for the high school musical at Gibraltar. And he told me, and then Jeff Herps kind of repeated on the podcast a couple months ago about how this location is not a replacement for the stage in the park they needed it because they needed a home they've been around for so long and when they started out they were storing all of their sets and costumes in each other's garages and the, like it just wasn't a way to sustain what they were doing and they want to continue to grow and they want to be able to put on shows every year and new work every year which is the other cool thing about that is that they're constantly putting on new work that was either uh written and developed or just premiered here in door county which is a really cool thing to be able to say like my community premieres new theater every year but they just needed a place for that and now they have one Uh, and it's not a replacement for the park stage but it's it's a facility that they can use to continue to reach back out into the community and provide those things that you were talking about like classes for children and and opportunities for other people and that kind of stuff so yeah it's um, really cool that was the big thing that I took away from talking to them is that this was a big effort of love for them and they just they
1: were so excited to finally have a home and you know one last thing that's worth mentioning is they did recognize fred alley's contributions to first american folklore theater now northern sky fred alley who died back in 2001 in probably one of the saddest months i've ever experienced up here when fred alley johnny gonzalez and darren dobner all died kind of tragically and tragically young all under the age of 42 i believe all in a three-week stretch in the spring of 2001 i mean they were all just shocking fred even crazier because he had a heart attack while out on a run you know doing the thing to keep you healthy and I just remember people coming into Husby's at that time and how just devastating that was. And people at that time thinking, what does this mean for American Folklore Theater to to lose Fred, who had become the face of that organization? And I think it speaks a lot to the people who continued to forge on and carried on in his memory and, it, and the memory of everyone else who had worked so hard on that. And I know when people mentioned him at the event last week, uh, there was a lot of tears. There was... A lot of people choked up. And I, I think it was Mary Seberg who said, like, imagine what Fred would think of this now to see where it's come just 18 years later. And you really think about how far that is. I mean, just to see a space like that and see your organization become something like that. It was really cool to see it. I'm excited to see how things progress with the new space over this fall season and
0: next year and all that kind of stuff. Should be really exciting. Yeah. Uh, with that, Miles, why don't we take a break, and then when we come back, I think maybe one of the more talked about news stories of the past couple of weeks has been the proposed affordable housing solution in Bailey's Harbor, the right. campground, that kind of came and went in in a lot of ways very quickly, uh, but with a lot of passionate people and a lot of discussion around it. So when we come back, I want to dig into that whole story uh, and try to hash things out, wh- where we stand now and, and and what happened over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. The podcast this week is brought to you by Brilliant Marketing Communications. Introducing Brilliant Sound Sessions, a free discussion series casually facilitated by the folks at Brilliant Marketing Communication. Locals can share ideas and get advice on marketing from each other and professionals. Brilliant Sound Sessions will take place the second Tuesday of every month at the Brilliant Marketing Communication Office in Sturgeon Bay. Kick Coffee Roasters are kicking in the coffee, and space is limited, so please RSVP. Details at BrilliantMKTG.com or on Facebook. Listen, exchange, grow together, drink free coffee. Okay, we are back. So, Miles, affordable housing has been at the forefront of the conversation all year round. Talked about this a little bit last week about how there's been a ton of different stuff from the EDC's affordable housing study uh, that was released to the sustainability issue of, of the Pulse being focused on affordable housing. It's awesome to see that so many people are talking about it, and there's been a lot of meetings that have been focused on trying to hack away at this issue and trying to find solutions. One potential solution came up a couple weeks ago. It was a proposed affordable housing campground in
1: Bailey's Harbor. Tell me a little bit about the beginning of that idea. So this is a a seasonal solution, and it was pitched as a solution to the seasonal housing shortage that being people who need somewhere to stay during the busy season, sometime, say, May 1st through October 31st. And it's important to know that like there are many different segments of this housing shortage. There's a component that's just seniors looking to downsize. There's young adults who can't afford to buy homes. There's a lack of affordable rental apartments for year-round use. And then there's also the seasonal housing component. In most of the discussions I have with people that are really well-educated on the the housing topic, all of us said, hey, the seasonal housing problem is actually the easiest one to solve because you don't need the large-scale, year-round infrastructure, garages, all the things that you need when you got to get through the harsh winter. And most of us looked at a campground-style thing as a pretty viable solution. Folks like myself and many others have actually lived in campgrounds For summers while working here, or dorm like situations, or literally a tent in the backyard. This guy, it's a husband and wife who came forward with a plan that they've been ruminating on for most of the last year to build a bunch of cabins that would host six people in each cabin. It would be located about four to five miles north of Bailey's Harbor near Highway 57, which in many ways is pretty central. That's about not quite halfway between Sister Bay and Bailey's Harbor, not quite to the AC tap. And then that would also potentially serve Fish Creek and Egg Harbor. It came under a lot of scrutiny as soon as it was pitched, as soon as we did an article, and I think the Door County Advocate also did articles about it. People complained that this would be inhumane. There were actually people who said it was inhumane housing. People said, well, we got to do a lot better for our seasonal housing shortage and for our seasonal workers and it's going to be dangerous because they're going to have to bike on Highway 57 to get anywhere. It's too far from any main corridors. So how are people going to get to work? A lot of different complaints came forward. Then there were complaints from neighbors who said it would change the character of the area. So the business plan, they went through the Door County Economic Development Corporation's business planning class, and they actually won, I think it's like a $1,000 prize for the best business plan. Then once that was... Announced it was almost immediately scuttled. The county of Door changed their zoning rules so that if you wanted to build a campground, which is what this would have to be kind of zoned as and how it would fit in, 20% of that campground could be cabins. Everything else had to be like a more transient style tent camping, RVs, that sort of thing. So their plan basically knocked out the window before it really even got started. Right. And that is a change that the county had been looking at prior to this proposal. So it's something they had in the works. It wasn't aimed at this, to the best of my knowledge. So let's look at the plan
0: a little bit more. And and keeping in mind that we know way less about this than the people who should know about this would know in terms of like if it's viable or not. But Greg and Jamie Schaub had proposed to do 16 14 by 28 foot cabins that could house as many as six seasonal workers. And then they would all have a combined Bathroom, kitchen, living space like that to all use together. 14 by 28 feet seems like a small amount to put six people in. And and I'm basing this off of my college dorm experience, which was limited mostly to two people sharing a space relatively the same size. So do you think that this was dead in the water from the beginning? Or do you think that this type of idea has legs and maybe
1: should be fleshed out further? There's definitely question marks for this plan, in my mind. When I looked at it, I thought the same thing. like, six people in one of those cabins. The proposed rent would have been $500 a month. In my mind, that's on the high end. You know, that's for the market to decide, but I know that I used to house seasonal employees when we had Husbys, we had housing on site. We would charge maybe, uh, this is 20 years ago, so maybe $100 to $200 a month, and that was about the most we could ask from people at the time. People make a little bit more now, not like, not not tons more so when people have asked me what they think you could charge those summer workers i would guess 400 is probably on the top end and that's if you were sharing a house with your own bathroom maybe not your own bathroom but like a bathroom for two or three people yeah and connected in two. yeah in the same building in this case you'd have a an exterior central bathroom facility i have no problem with doing it that way I just wonder if that price point was too high, but that's not how you decide to approve or disapprove of it. And that actually shouldn't be people's kind of larger criticisms. That doesn't matter. That's for the market. You know If the guy thinks he can get a thousand bucks for that, great. It's up to somebody else to build it cheaper. So somebody else should come in and undercut them at 300 dollars a month or 200 or whatever. But what really disappointed me in this process is we've been talking about housing for about 25 years, and in in earnest. And there haven't been that many proposals to attack this problem. And the first major one we have in years, all people do is complain about what it doesn't do and what they see as the flaws. Instead of having a really good, honest discussion about, is this viable? How could we help make it work? It was just, you know, slapping them as greedy or these were people who proposed that they would build their house on that property and raise their two teenage kids on that property. So they had a vested interest in it being a clean, quiet, good neighbor facility. I mean, there's this. Bob Lautenbach proposed a dorm years ago. Every time someone proposes any sort of seasonal housing solution, it gets shot down. It really doesn't even come to the table before either zoning rules, town boards, or the public just makes it untenable. And I think people have to change attitudes about that. I don't know. I haven't looked deep into the plans because it didn't even come forward, really. Right. Uh, I mean, we've never even had an artist rendering of these cabins in our paper because it never got that far. So people are judging it based on probably not even reading an article, but probably just reading a headline on Facebook. Right. Well, and the the thing is, too, like no solution
0: that ever comes forward is going to be perfect. You're never going to have the one solution that's going to take care of everything. But finding solutions that, that create a groundwork to improve upon... They're few and far between, but when they do finally come forward, that's the opportunity to be like, hey, this is a good idea. How can we make this better? How can we make this work for more people? Rather than just being like, no, not this. Because the people who come forward and say like, no, this is not the solution, almost never have another solution to bring up as like, this is a better solution. Yeah, It's always just like, no, that's not going to do it. Back to the drawing board kind of thing.
1: Well, the, and the only solution I've seen people kind of toss out their haphazard is, public funding for housing. Towns just don't have the money. It's like a non-starter. That'd be great, but I mean, I'd rather have a private enterprise fill that void. A lot of private companies have filled it for their own individual use. It's the first guy to propose something that would serve other people, other businesses. And maybe that 500 doesn't work in some people's minds, like my own, but maybe if a business needs housing that bad, maybe you'd say, oh, like maybe us as a Pulse, I'm not saying we'd do this, but spitballing here, like, Okay, we have a great intern candidate, and we've lost many great interns because they they can't find housing. They can't afford five hundred a month, but maybe this intern is valuable enough to us that we will pay two hundred dollars of that, and then the intern pays three or something like that. I could definitely see that playing out at other places. It's still probably high on our end because that basically increases that intern's wage by whatever that two hundred is divided by the, you know, a couple of bucks an hour or something like that. But that's part of that equation, maybe, maybe. There are businesses that would just say, okay, we're going to rent that whole cabin for the season for six employees, and we're going to pay it, and then we'll collect a portion of that from somebody else. There are businesses who are paying, are subsidizing their employees' housing costs now, who have built homes. Main Street Market built a dorm. They're not covering the cost by renting that to seasonal people. So people are kind of looking at it wrong in that sense. Many businesses are just building that housing cost into their budget and their business plan at this point. There's also the transportation issue. That that's real. There are a lot of I don't know what people think, but there are a lot of seasonal workers biking down the highway every day 8 to 10 miles to get to work now. So to say that oh that'll never work cuz it's too far, they're doing it now. Right? right. Like <laughs> and not all of those seasonal housing workers will be on bikes. But that is an issue. You know, you're going to have more people going down 57 to go to work somewhere or maybe they're going to take back roads, which is what a lot of people do if they want to be safe. But Maybe that inspires another conversation about building a bike lane, which I think we should have between Bailey's Harbor and Sister Bay. That's great. If this spurs that to happen, the fact that we have that problem doesn't mean that the housing thing goes away. It just means we have that problem. We probably need to solve that, too. So there's there's issues here. I'd love to have seen some public meetings and possible solutions brought forward rather than this knee-jerk, no, this is bad. So... You're seeing some of that in Sturgeon Bay as well, where there's an affordable housing proposal at the old West Side School. And some people are saying that's a bad place for affordable housing. And it's right next to a skate park. (laughs) It is right next to a skate park. And some people are saying, well, yeah, I know we need low income housing, but we just don't need it there. Well, where is the appropriate place? And I get it. Maybe you want something. Maybe you think that particular spot is a great place for high-income, high tax base apartments. But every time someone builds that, what does everyone else say? Well, what about affordable housing? Right. And then the other point is, as Jim Sussler pointed out, the head of Door County Economic Development Corporation, that property has sat dormant for more than 20 years. There have been plenty of opportunity for developers to come out and do a high-end project there. So the first time we finally have a workable proposal for development on that site in 20 years, I think maybe that's evidence that we're not going to get the other one. So we shouldn't scuttle this because it's not this other thing. Get kind of caught up in that. Right. Yeah, I guess when it came down to
0: it, I would rather have that property be used for something that's going to benefit the community rather than just continuing to be an old school with a bunch of broken windows.
1: Well, and think about this. When, we, when you say affordable housing, when you're talking attainable housing, you're not talking about And this is no knock on people on welfare. Don't take this that way. But in this case, in Door County, you're not talking about people on welfare. The people who qualify for those affordable housing subsidies in Door County because of our property prices, it's teachers, it's nurses, it's cops, it's the waiters and waitresses, it's cooks. These are people that work 40 plus hours a week. Some of them work two jobs, but the way property is priced in this county still can't afford rent anywhere the rents at that surgeon bay place they're talking at the west side school they're talking somewhere between as low as like the low 300s for a one bedroom apartment that's phenomenal if you are a teacher who's going to come in and make peanuts for the first few years this is a way for them to get the foot in the door and instead of saying well those low income place people there's other places for them why not give them the best and make them want to stay in your city instead of having this non-stop teacher and nurse turnover I just talked to somebody at one of the hospitals in Northern Door. They can basically get people to come up and fill the shoes for a year at a time. They're like, yeah, but then I'm going to move. So you have this constant doctor rotation. Great housing is for entry-level people downtown in a walkable area where you don't have to have a car to do everything you want to do and where you have easy access to bike trails and to the storefront. That might be the best marketing Sturgeon Bay could do to try and revitalize its youth community and get its population Flipping the other way because they're losing population so it's going to be interesting if you can break people out of like kind of old school thinking in door county
0: miles you've had your head in this topic all year long what do you think the best way is for people to talk about this what do you think the best way to shape the
1: discourse is i think anytime you want to talk about something it starts with learning about it so actually read not just the article that you're commenting on on Facebook and that you're talking about in public, read that article, read a little bit more background, read the housing study. Maybe not all of it, but there's some pretty decent stuff just by the summaries that are out there. There are videos online of presentation that, that we've done about the housing issue. Heck, email me. And not that I know all the answers, but like I can point people in the right direction for some of this stuff. There's plenty of people that are a lot smarter than me on this. And then there's also like, just don't think that anything new is wrong or bad. I'm prone to that too. My knee jerk is that. But then I try to read and study and talk to people to find out whether my knee jerk is correct or not. And I I think we need more of that and give things an open hearing. Like, yes, there are a lot of developers that are just trying to get a buck out of this county. But sometimes we can benefit from that buck they're trying to get out of this county too. And sometimes we can influence that like we talked about on the podcast earlier this week. I think we live in our silos And so people comment on a proposal based on their particular business or their particular lifestyle. And that's really dangerous because when you're talking public investment and public projects and public infrastructure, it's not about you. It's not about me. You know, like discussion of taxes isn't about what I'm going to pay or not going to pay. It's what's best for the whole. And we always talk about these things in terms of like me, 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 my business, my business or my community. We got to think about it broader, take a deep breath and then think about, okay, what's the reality of the waitress? Like just because you say, well, they make 300 bucks. Yeah, they make 300 bucks on Saturday night then they make 120 bucks on Sunday. They don't make crap from Monday through Wednesday. So instead of extrapolating on what you think people make and can afford, which I've seen a lot of people do, like actually give it a little bit of thought, (laughs) a little bit deeper and capture it outside of like your own silo. Yeah, I think the the best
0: reference that I can give, my millennial perspective on what you just said, is when I went to college, there was a question that I had heard that was given at a public forum about student debt. And the student said, hey, I noticed that on my tuition bill, I pay for the gym, I pay for the, the sports facility, I pay for the weight room, I pay for all of this stuff on the campus that I never, ever use why do I have to pay for that stuff when I never even go into those buildings? And the response that the faculty gave was like, if only the people who use them paid for them, they wouldn't exist. So the fact that like I was a theater major, I almost never ever went into the gymnasium or to the football field or the ice rink or anything like that. I never had any reason to. But knowing that I was paying to help my other classmates, you know, my peers, go here hundreds of students every year were able to go to my college because they got scholarships sports scholarships and athletic scholarships and they use that stuff every day and without my small part they wouldn't be able to do that that's where I started to really realize like oh it's not just about me it's about my community and it's about my peers and about the place that I live or I'm going to school or anything like that so when you see a proposal for something and you think like well I don't need that so it must be bad Or I don't need that, so I don't want to, you know, pay more taxes on it or anything like that. That's where you have to start thinking about, like, well, I do use other things
1: in the community. And without all of it, then none of it would be here. Yeah, because other people pay for the theater. (laughs) Who will never set foot in a theater and who will never act or pursue it or appreciate it they're also pitching in because if all you had was like the 34 people in the theater class, you'd never be able to build that structure, right? Right. I'm going to try and spin this in a positive way because I know I go on these rants and Dave tells me I'm too negative on the podcast. So if I am too negative, let me know. Any listeners, I'll take it. I'll take the heat. But it is instructive when you see this to see how many people continue to work through these problems over the years. Like Mariah Good's been part of this Attainable Housing project for like 20 some years. She was writing about this in the Peninsula Pulse in like the third year that we existed. And she still works. She still goes to these meetings, still tries to push it forward. She takes the arrows on all sides because she's also the zoning administrator. So some people will blame her for the fact that there's this zoning ordinance and that's preventing affordable housing. And she's constantly working on the edges and trying to tweak things to meet the demands of the public that say, we don't want this kind of development. We got to protect everything. While also saying, well, we need some density in some places so that we can build something affordably. Folks like that, and Becky Kerwin's working on this at the planning department. Jim Schusser is new to the county but is working really hard on it. Diana Wallace with the Housing Trust is busting her tail trying to get some affordable housing options for people. And I think it is important for me to realize how much persistence that takes because it's really easy to throw your hands up. The developer of this campground got that rezoning thing from the county and immediately said, well, the project's dead. It was just too much bad blood in the community. And we're walking away. You know what? You got to take that heat. And Facebook isn't everybody too. So if you actually want to move forward, you maybe have to have thicker skin than that and tweak your proposal or find a different property. There are places where that project is probably still possible in Door County and keep fighting through it because there's going to be hurdles. I've talked to so many developers over the years who are like, oh, it's hard to do anything in Door County. Well, it's hard to do something anywhere. And and they will tell you that it's not. And there maybe there are some places with no zoning. I think Houston has no zoning. It's not a good thing. Like the city of Houston sprawls and sprawls and sprawls. And their lack of zoning is one reason why it flooded so crazily during the hurricane. It's bad development. You do need some zoning. Egg Harbor is probably the township has no zoning. You're starting to see some of the storage units pop up along the corridor entering town. It's starting to look a little strip molly in some spots. They're probably going to have to grapple with that pretty soon. So I think, you know, just having a little thicker skin and continuing to work and follow the example of those people who just continue to swing hammers at this problem is what I'm trying to focus on a little bit more.
0: Well, I think that's just about going to wrap up for news for us this week. I do have one more short thing I wanted to talk to you about just between you and me and the listeners who are still with us at this point. I'm always looking at the analytics for the podcast, and the podcast is spread out over a bunch of different websites that all offer analytics from SoundCloud to Spotify to Apple Podcasts. But the one thing that I didn't actually know about that wasn't delivered to me from any of these sources is Nobody's listening. Nobody's listening, (laughs) no. Is that we have uh, a bunch of reviews on Apple Podcasts. And we a lot do. Of, yeah, a lot of really great Sweet. reviews, people saying nice things, people giving constructive criticism, which is always great to hear. So just found out about those reviews. If you're one of the people who's listening, who's reviewed us before, thank you so much. If you're still listening right now and you want to drop us a review, give us some feedback. That would be awesome. It only helps to further spread the word to other people who are interested in Door County and what we do here and all that kind of stuff. So
1: and if you hate the podcast and are still listening, I don't know why you would. But if you do have bad things to say, Go ahead and say them, but after you give us a five-star review anyway.
0: Yeah, five-star review, and then you can tear us apart.
1: Uh, But thank you guys
0: for giving feedback and for engaging with the podcast. It's always really nice to hear messages from people who listen who say that they find it important or entertaining or anything like that, Uh, and it's always great to get feedback so that we can keep getting better for you every week. So thank you so much for listening and for leaving us reviews and all that kind of stuff, and uh, we look forward to making more great content for you every week.
1: Great point, Andrew. Um, Thanks for alerting me to these reviews that are out there. Yeah. Now, I'm uh, kind of scared to look at them. but No, they're, they're
0: all very good, which is really nice to hear. So all with right. that, thank you so much for chatting with me, Miles, and I will chat with you again soon. Thanks, Andrew. more door county news interviews and exclusive content check us out at doorcountypulse.com or pick up this week's issue of the peninsula pulse available every friday don't forget to subscribe to the door county pulse podcast to get new episodes delivered straight to your device twice a week thank you for listening to the door county pulse podcast